Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 42 of the Hey Kerwin Show. Coming to you live from Santa Monica. We are down here and this is the injured edition. I've just pulled my hamstring. We're here for our K2 Superhuman event. I'm literally sitting on ice. I pulled my hamstring, sitting in the park. It's a beautiful day and Maddie said we may as well do a Hey Kerwin. So, first question comes from Tim Berg. Tim Berg. <laughs> How do you overcome criticism? I understand we shouldn't care what other people think, but I do. Yeah, look, I think at the end of the day, like what other people think of us, it's none of our business. Uh, and criticism is like any other form of stress. It's like any other trigger. You know, the more we expose ourselves to it, and the more tools we have to regulate the emotions and the stress that it brings up when it happens, the easier it is to deal with. You know, I think one of the things that a lot of people assume is the more successful you become, the less criticism you get. But in many, in many respects, the more successful you become, ultimately the more visible you are, and that has the potential to attract more criticism. That has the potential to attract more haters. Uh, and that's the thing. You know, in Australia, we have this thing called the tall, tall poppy syndrome. We love the Aussie battler until he's so rich and successful, and then he's a pedophile, pedophile and drug dealer. And that, in just many, in many respects, is the way that you know some people operate as they find success a threat. So we've really got to become comfortable with the idea that not everyone's going to like us, uh, and also comfortable and okay with the idea that not only are not, is not everyone going to like us, but there are going to be some people that actually cross that boundary from not liking us to actually verbalising some form of criticism or verbalising some form of hate. And look, let's be honest, we're mammals, and you know the ultimate driver of a mammal is connection. And when we receive that kind of rejection, you know it is going to have an impact. It is going to be a trigger, and so it's up to us to learn how to you know reassert recreate a meaning around those rejections that's going to enable us to build strength uh, versus erode us and, and create levels of weakness but ultimately you know it's not about running away from the criticism it's about learning how to stand in the rain uh, and actually dance in the rain you know the criticism is the rain and if you can dance in the rain then it doesn't matter what the weather is you'll be able to have fun I hope that helps Tim Berg next question <sighs> Elizabeth Inglis Williams Hey Liz. How do you give back fears caused from trauma, such as a child seeing abuse and is now afraid of being yelled at uh, or hit by their partner? How does someone give something like that back? Look, I think the way that you give anything back is through healing, you know, and well, you know, when, from that video where I said we, you know, we, we basically adopt fears from other people, you know, there's more to it than just giving that fear back. We've got to deal with that underlying trauma. We've got to deal with that underlying fear. But ultimately, we've got to look, you know, when you deal with any form of trauma, you know, most forms of trauma therapy is about going back into that trauma and recreating new memories so that we remember the, the experience in a different way, in a more fulfilling way, in a more empowering way. You know, I think the way that we give our fears back is by balancing them out and first of all, realizing that we do only have two fears born with two basic fears and we're born with the fear of falling we're born with the fear of loud noises and every other fear that we, we have adopted through our experiences and through our observations and through modeling and the way that we give those fears back is by exposing ourselves to those fears for extended periods of time uh, with the with the right tools but also with the realization that the, these things don't fundamentally kill us but they do have the potential to make us stronger with the right tools and that's where you know for me any form of therapy any form of you know trauma therapy or you know or or or, 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 or transcendence of fears it requires a set of tools in most cases you're not going to transcend fear you know you're not going to transcend trauma you know just by uh, just by sitting on it you've actually got to do something with it and for me you know the way that we do something with it is by exposing ourselves to the things that actually you know create fear for us and you know developing the tools that's required to regulate the emotion and to regulate the stress that we experience when those fears you know are ultimately triggered 
and it's a process and realizing that we may not transcend those fears immediately it may take time and we've got to be kind to ourselves because the last thing we want to do is you know in the process of transcending fears if we're not at the level that we want to be able to transcend that information transcend those emotions and transcend that fear is to be beating ourselves up because we're just creating a negative association you know, the goal with the transcendence of any form of fear is to look at the benefit you know what, what is the benefit of this fear how is this serving me what skills knowledge experience am I getting as a result of this fear that is actually making me better but then we use exposure therapy you know, which is a form of um, uh, de-association to de dis disassociate the, 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 the emotional trigger, disassociate that the emotional impulse that's created, the biochemical impulse, the neurological, bioneurological impulse that's created as a result of that exposure. And the more we do that with the right tools, the easier it gets to, to be able to regulate and maintain. And again, much like the very first question, it's not about you know, wishing that we had less things to be afraid of, it's about wishing that we had more tools to be able to regulate the fears that we have so that we can deal with them in the moments that they're present. So I hope that helps. Crystal McInnes. Hey Crystal. I find it easy to be overwhelmed by business, relationships, anxiety. Hey mate. <laughs> oh, the man. race is on. The race is on. I told you, we're in the middle of the amazing race. The K2, the Hey Kerwin, amazing race edition. Crystal McInnes. Hey I find Crystal. It easy to be overwhelmed to the point that I procrastinate all day instead of doing. Where do I start? You just start with, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one bite at a time. And the thing we need to do, you know, to overcome any form of procrastination is to take an action. You know, overwhelm is one of those things that you can't escape. And much like the, the, the previous two questions, it's not about wishing that we were, that life was easier, that there was less overwhelm. It's about, you know, creating the tools and developing the tools that enable us to deal with overwhelm better. But then having a system, you know, because we have a system to deal with overwhelm. You know, we have a system to regulate stress and emotion, but we also need a system to be able to prioritize the things that are important so that we do the things that are important that enable us to get the level of momentum that's required that in many cases make other things either obsolete or a lot easier to deal with. You know, everything in life is easier to deal with when you have momentum going in the right direction. And that's one of those things when it comes to dealing with overwhelm, when it comes to procrastination. To me, you know, overcoming procrastination is, is a game of momentum. And the way that we overcome or create momentum is by taking a step in a particular direction. We build inertia. And the way that we build inertia is by moving in a particular direction. And at first it might be slow, but the, the, the more we move in that direction, the more pace we get and the, and the better we get at moving in a particular direction, the more inertia we have and then the easier it is to be able to deal with those situations and circumstances, the easier it is to deal with overwhelm. But more importantly, you know, the easier it is to deal with that procrastination because if we, if we literally start to train ourselves to take action when we feel procrastination, the moment, like if you literally train yourself, the moment you become consciously aware that you're procrastinating, you literally go, right, just take one, one action right now. If you constantly train yourself to do that, it becomes habitual. And once it's habitual, it becomes autonomous. And then you literally associate procrastination with taking action. And then every time you go to pr procrastinate, you actually take some form of action. So, you know, the best way to hack procrastination is by training it to create behaviors that move you in the right direction. And, you know, it but it's like anything. It takes time. You know, you're not going to do this in one session. You're not going to get fit by going to the gym once. You know, you're not going to get uh, slim by eating one salad. You know, you've got to be willing to do this consistently over and over in order to get the rewards, you know, that, uh, that come with that with that behavior but you know ultimately it's consequential do the things that as a natural consequence will create the behavior that you want and if you do them consistently that creates in a ritualistic manner that creates habitual behavior and habitual behavior becomes autonomous and then we're free and then once we're free we don't have to think about overcoming procrastination you know it's a natural impulse next question is from Julian Vanderwaal do you have a HR formula of when you put more staff on a HR formula for when you put more staff on 
Well, I wouldn't say we have a HR formula, but we basically, when we hire, we're looking for two things. We're looking for either, we're looking for performance and we're looking for culture fit. You know, and performance is understanding, uh, you know, being able to work at a particular uh, level of output, you know, with a particular level of skill. And, you know, culture is about being aligned with a, with a purpose, with a mission, with a set of values, so that behaviourally everyone's moving in the right direction. You know, when it comes to performance, you know, one of the things that we look for, you know, when it comes to a formula is people who have a background, you know, in some form of discipline. I'm, I'm really attracted towards people who have a background in competitive sports, you know, or anything that is of, of, of competitive nature, you know, martial arts, you know, professional sports, you know, anything whereby, you know, they're, they're, they've, they've had a, a routine over a period of time that has required them to apply discipline towards a specific task repetitiously uh, that in many cases has, you know, shown them how to push through barriers. And so for me, you know, performance is one of those things that I'm really interested in. People who've got a background in performance, but they've also got to have a particular skill set and the way that we assess for skills, uh, we've got this three-part process, you know, context, concept, uh, and outcome. So for me, you know, if I'm trying to assess someone's particular skills, you know, the first thing I want to do is, is say, you know, uh, tell me about a particular time where you had to use this skill, you know, context. Uh, tell me exactly what you did, content, and then tell me exactly what happened, you know, which is the outcome. And so for me, you know, someone might be able to fudge you, you know, one or two times when you're trying to assess a skill, but if, if, if they're really good at what they are, they're not going to, if they're not good at what they are, ultimately they're going to come undone. So for me, you know, say for example, if I'm assessing someone when it comes to Facebook advertising, I'll say, okay, tell me about a time where you had to set up a particular funnel using Facebook ads. And you know, tell me exactly, give me the context, give me the strategy. What were you doing? What was the goal? What was the funnel? And then it's like, okay, tell me exactly what steps you took. How did you actually set it up? What was step one? What was step two? So I'm looking for the technical expertise. And again, you've got to have some kind of a technical understanding to be able to assess technical expertise. But when you can sit there and you know get them to tell you step by step exactly what's involved in the process, that creates the picture of whether or not they know technically exactly what's involved in the execution you know of that concept and then the outcome is what happened you know and you can use that for any skill whether it be you know Facebook ads or basically any skill whatsoever sales uh, and it gives you a really good picture of the understanding of, of the process uh, of the skill set that's required and then culture that to me is the formula for that is really just finding out about what their natural values are, what's important to you, what do you do on your time off. You know, if you didn't have any have to worry about money, what would be the things that you'd be, you know, putting your life towards, and what would be some of the things that you're doing. And that for me, when you ask those questions, it's indicative of the. And then you want to do is listen, and what you listen to will be indicative of what's important to them. And if those values align with the values of the organisation, then you're going to have, you know, a greater probability of cultural alignment, which is going to really support you in the relationship stage or the relationship side of the business. So there, the, if there's a relationship, if there's a HR formula, they're the three things that we look at. We look at culture, we look at performance, and we look at skill. Uh, and uh, you know, that uh, works pretty well for us. But understanding, depending on your, what your criteria for performance is, is going to reduce the talent pool that you're going to have access to. You know, some businesses have greater talent pools than others because there's less skill set required, less performance requirements, and in some cases, less cultural requirements. You know, that might be. Um, Need on, 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 on when it comes to the business owner. Whereas for us, you know, we have very high levels, high standards when it comes to performance, very high standards when it comes to culture, very high, high standards when it comes to skill sets. So that means that you know, for businesses that have that kind of perspective, you're going to have a much more limited talent pool, which means you're probably going to have to work harder to find the talent you're looking for. So I hope that helps. That is enough for an episode, but I'm, I would like to like someone here ask you a question. Yeah, all right. Does anyone have a question for Kerwin? Anyone's got a question? We're going to go live to the studio to audience here in Santa Monica for Hey Kerwin. What's your Hey Kerwin question? My Hey Kerwin question is, in five years' time, what does K2 look like in your vision? Oh, that's a very good question. And then the, then the honest answer is, 
uh, it is an evolution of what it is right now. Like I see K2 becoming even more so the most exclusive network and tribe of elite business people and conscious entrepreneurs. And for me, it's about creating a greater level of solidarity within that family and a greater level of support within that family uh, in order to be able to affect people at a higher level. And by then, who knows? Uh, I'd say we'll probably be in North America, uh, probably be in Canada, and there's every possibility we may be in Asia as well. But uh, for me, the most important thing when it comes to K2 in the next five years is making sure that it is sustainable. Thank you, Julie Fletcher. <laughs> That's episode 42 of the Hey Kerwin Co. Hey Kerwin Co. The Hey Kerwin Show down here in Santa Monica, beautiful LA. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 